our daily conversations are filled with questions. Where have you been? How are you doing? Why do you think that? What do you want for dinner? Who was that on the phone? It's hard to imagine a conversation without questions. Some questions are more straightforward than others. Some can be answered with a simple yes or no. Others require some deeper explanation. Sometimes we're just looking for information or clarification. Other times we're trying to connect with someone to get to know them better. Some questions really get to the heart of who we are and what we believe and how we live. Perhaps that's one of the reasons Jesus asked so many questions. Many of the questions that he asked were designed to do just that, to get to the heart of who we are and what we believe and how we live. In the introduction to his book, Questions Jesus Asked, McGray de Vega cites an author who, another author who claims that Jesus asked a total of 307 questions in the four Gospels. I was not able to verify that count from other sources. I briefly considered going through and counting them all for myself. Decided that probably wasn't the best use of my time. So we'll just have to take his word for it. 307 questions. That's a lot of questions. That's like more than the SATs. <laughs> Jesus asked more questions than he answered. At least when it comes to simple, straightforward answers, Jesus didn't give a lot of simple, straightforward answers. It's hard to find instances where Jesus gave a direct answer to someone's question. More often, he would tell a story or use a parable. Or he would turn the question back on the person asking it. When someone asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He asked in return, what is written in the law? What do you read there? Now he could have just said, believe in me, right? Believe in me, put your trust in me, follow my ways and you will have eternal life. That would have been the theologically correct and direct answer to the man's question. But Jesus didn't travel much in theologically correct and direct answers. Jesus asked questions. In our gospel reading for today, Jesus asked two questions. They are related questions, very similar to one another, but they lead in very different directions. There's only a one or two word difference between the questions, but those one or two words make a world of difference. The first one is this, who do the crowds say that I am? The crowds were not around when Jesus asked that. He was alone with his disciples. He was asking them what others were saying about him. Jesus had been going about his public ministry for some time. He had been performing miracles, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, casting out demons. He had drawn quite a large following to himself. And Jesus taught the crowds. He preached the Sermon on the Mount to the multitudes. He proclaimed the kingdom of God near and far. The crowds had followed him from place to place. They had seen a lot. They had heard a lot. But how much did they understand? What did they believe was really going on with this Jesus of Nazareth? Who do the crowds say that I am? 
The question seeks information. It's not an analysis of truth. He's not asking the disciples to evaluate the accuracy of the crowd's assessment. You don't have to be introspective about Jesus to answer the question. You don't really even have to know Jesus to answer the question. You just have to know what other people are saying about him. That's all that he asks. What's the word on the street? What are folks saying? It's a very safe question for the disciples to answer because they're just reporting what's out there. And there was a whole lot out there. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets of old has risen. Might seem odd that some would suggest he was John the Baptist. Weren't John the Baptist and Jesus alive at the same time? How could they be the same person? But keep in mind, this was after John the Baptist had been killed. And Jesus didn't really come on the scene until just shortly before that. John had been such a popular guy. People really believed in John. They they thought that he might be the one. It was hard for some of them to believe that someone like John the Baptist could even die. People living out in the countryside, hearing the stories second or third hand, they hear this terrible, this unbelievable story about John being beheaded. They don't want to believe it. They can't believe it. And then, not too long after that, stories start circulating about this new guy, Jesus, who seems to have arisen out of nowhere They hear the amazing miracles he's performing, the the wonderful things that he's teaching, the spectacular crowds that he's drawing around himself. Maybe, maybe they were right all along. Maybe John didn't die after all. Maybe that was just fake news. Jesus is John the Baptist. That's what some of them thought. Or perhaps Elijah. The Bible talks about Elijah being carried bodily and alive into heaven on a flaming chariot. The Jews had always believed that he would return one day as the forerunner of the Christ. They even set an empty place for him at the Passover table. So certain were they that he was coming back. So eager were they for his return. Jesus is Elijah. That's what some of them thought. Others thought Jesus was one of the great prophets returned from the dead. Many Jews at the time had a strong belief in bodily resurrection. The fact that the prophets of old had died and been buried, that was no obstacle to their coming back. God could raise one of them up at any time to resume the ministry begun centuries before. Jesus is one of the prophets of old, risen from the grave. That's what some said. All of these answers that the disciples gave were right, I don't mean they were true about who Jesus was and is, but they were correct in answering the question, the question that Jesus posed, who do the crowds say that I am? These were the things that the crowds were saying about him. Then Jesus changed the question. It's much like the first, but instead of what the crowds were saying, he asked about you. What about you? Who do you say that I am? All Jesus did was remove the two words, the crowds, and replace them with the one word, you. But that minor change to the question makes a major difference. 
doesn't it? This question is not nearly as easy or as safe for the disciples to answer. No longer are they being asked to simply report what others are saying. They're being asked what they themselves believe. Peter was the first to answer. Peter's always the first to answer. In this case, though, Peter's answer was right on the money. The Christ of God. The Christ of God, he says in Luke's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus immediately praised Peter for giving the right answer. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Simon Peter was given divine insight, a holy faith. He was the first one to know. He was the first one to believe in his heart and to confess with his lips that Jesus is the Messiah. There is a sense in which this passage is the pivotal point of the entire gospel. The story is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Mark's gospel, this story is literally the center of the book. Not only does it appear right in the middle of the middle chapter, but it's also the turning point of the story. Up until this time in Mark, everything has been leading toward figuring out who Jesus is. Everything in the first half of Mark's gospel leads up to this realization that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then... From that point on, the entire remainder of Mark's gospel is all about figuring out what that means. That Jesus will suffer and die. And on the third day rise again to save us from sin, to usher in eternal life. In Luke's gospel too, prior to this story, in the whole gospel prior to this story, there is no mention at all of the cross or of Jesus' impending suffering and death. But as soon as Peter answers this question, as soon as Peter makes that great confession of faith, you are the Christ of God, it is right at that moment that Jesus begins to teach about his sacrifice. Verses 21 and 22, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then he began to teach about the need to deny oneself. Then he began talking about taking up your cross daily. Why only then? Did he begin teaching those things? Why was it on the occasion of Peter's great confession that Jesus started revealing to them what must become of him and what must happen with them? Because it's only when you truly believe in Jesus that you can understand what that belief entails. It's only after you have committed yourself to Christ that you can begin to grasp what that commitment demands of you. Peter gave the right answer. It took him a while to get there. It took all of the disciples a while to get there, but they finally figured it out. I think the words that Peter spoke expressed what, what they had all come to believe about Jesus by that point. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. 
Jesus is the one God had promised would come to save God's people. They all knew that much. And to that extent, they were all correct. But there was more to it than that. There was a whole lot more to it than that. Now that they knew who Jesus was, now it was time for them to learn what that meant. That's why as soon as Peter gave the right answer to the question, Jesus told them not to tell anyone else. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one else. This wasn't a subtle, yeah, maybe we just keep this to ourselves for a while. This was direct and emphatic. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one. Why? Because even though they all now knew the correct answer about who Jesus was, none of them could have given the correct interpretation of what that meant. And it would have been even worse with the crowds. If the crowds had caught wind that Jesus was the Messiah, they would have been so far off in their expectations of what would happen next, Jesus couldn't have done another thing among them. They expected the Messiah to lead an armed revolt against Rome and against the corrupt powers of Jerusalem that colluded with Rome. They expected the Messiah to fight, to lead the charge into battle, to take up sword against their enemies. But that's not what it meant that Jesus is the Messiah. Once the disciples, those who were closest to Jesus, those who knew him best, those who were committed to him, as soon as they decided and declared that he truly was sent from God to be the Messiah, that's when Jesus began to fill in the rest. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You remember in Matthew's gospel, this is the point in the story when Peter took Jesus aside and advised him not to talk like that. Actually, Matthew says Peter rebuked Jesus for talking like that. The disciples were convinced, everyone was convinced that type of torture, that type of suffering, death, that can't happen to the Messiah. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew it was precisely because he was the Messiah that this must happen to him. This is why he came, not to win a temporal battle against their earthly enemies, but to win an eternal battle, an eternal battle against the powers of Satan and sin and death. And as soon as he began teaching them what that meant for him, he also began to teach them what that meant for them and for all those who would follow after him. If any would come after me, he said, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
Jesus was about to sacrifice himself for them. And that meant that they, in return, as those who believe in him and seek to follow him, they must be ready, willing, and able to give up everything for him. They must be ready, willing, and able to sacrifice everything for him, to endure anything for him. Jesus is our Messiah. Jesus is our Christ. That doesn't mean that he makes everything go easy for us in this life. It doesn't mean he has erased every worldly power and removed every evil that could ever come against us. It means that he has won the ultimate victory over evil. He has removed the ultimate threat of eternal death. Jesus, through his death, has erased our sin so that we can live with God forever. Jesus is our Savior, the one who sacrificed himself for us so that we might live. That means that we, in return, as those who believe in him and seek to follow in his ways, we must be ready, willing, and able to sacrifice everything for him, to give up anything that is not of him. We must be ready, willing, and able to take up our cross daily for him, to endure anything for him, because it is through his strength that we endure. It is by his grace that we thrive. It is by his sacrifice that we live. Who do you say that I am? It's a question that Jesus poses to every one of us. Perhaps it is the most pivotal question we will ever be asked because everything else in life and everything for eternity hinges on our answer to this one profound question, who is Jesus to you? Most of us know the right answer in our heads. Most of us can say the right answer with our lips. He is the Christ of God. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's the easy part, to know the answer, to say the answer with our lips. But are you saying the right answer with your life? Do you proclaim to everyone around you and to all the world that you know who Jesus is by the way you follow him? Who do you say that he is in the way that you live your life? That's the deeper question Jesus is driving at, the one that really makes a difference. Because if you say with your lips that Jesus is Lord, but you live every day for yourself, then you don't really know who Jesus is. Because if you set your daily agenda according to what you want to do without considering the needs of others and how you can serve them, then you don't really know who Jesus is. Because if you set your budget without putting the demands of God right there at the very top, then you don't know who Jesus is. Because if you don't pray without ceasing, thanking God for your every blessing, pleading to God for all the needs of the world, then you don't really know who Jesus is. Who do you say that Jesus is 
in the way that you pray for your neighbor and for your church? Who do you say that Jesus is in the way that you gather with other believers for worship, for study, for encouragement, for community? Who do you say that Jesus is through your tithe and with your giving to the needs of the world? Who do you say that Jesus is by the ways in which you serve others? Who do you say that Jesus is in the ways that you treat those who serve you? By the way you treat your family. By the way you treat your neighbor. By the way you treat the stranger. By the way you treat your enemy. Who do you say that Jesus is? Might we all be able to answer that question truthfully, honestly, not just with our lips, but with our lives? Amen.